This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And our next story comes from Bill Austin, the founder of Starkey, the largest hearing aid manufacturer in America. And we've previously told you Bill's life story and how this billionaire spends half of his time personally fitting hearing aids on the poor across the globe. But today, Bill brings us a story of American innovation and the extraordinary capabilities of their hearing aid called Livio AI. A lot of research came out that said, hey, people who have hearing loss, it so happens, are way more likely to have cognitive decline if the hearing loss is untreated. And then there's more and more research, and they're finding out that it's associated with Alzheimer's, senility, etc. And the people that had hearing loss, even mild hearing loss, were three times more likely to fall. And when they get older, they'd fall, break a hip, and you're dead within a year, typically. And so we said, wow, we can help in those areas. And so we decided we would create a score to measure brain health. And we found out there was a big university study that went on for years of what would help people live longer. And they decided, stop smoking, stop drinking, and that's what they thought it was gonna be. They really thought that was gonna be, and I, I would have too, I thought that's what it would be. Stop smoking, stop drinking, exercise more, eat better, and they had the list. And down the list comes social interaction. They found out that that was number one, that people who were engaged with their family and communicating socially active, mentally engaged, communicating with close friends, family, and then an outside circle that you'd engage with in your community, whoever that is, that those people would live longer and it had more effect on longevity than anything else. It was the greatest impactor on longevity. And so once we realized that, we said, hey, we wanna measure social engagement. So our devices can tell the difference between you listening to TV and talking to someone. And you get more points for talking to someone. If you're gonna to listen to something, if you listen to music, you get more points than listening to the TV because the music stimulates more of the brain. It's better for your brain health. So we're measuring what's going up the pipe to the brain and scoring that. And so we have a Thrive score of 100 points that we want to get on the mental side, on the brain side, because the brain runs the body and we want to keep the brain healthy and that'll keep you alive longer. And on the other side, we know you needed the exercises, you needed the movement. So on the physical side, we measure how often are you moving? Are you sitting, not just are you taking 10,000 steps a day, but it's measuring you all day long saying, hey, you've been sitting too long, you gotta move every hour. And you gotta move not just 10,000 slow steps, but you have to have at least 30 minutes of more brisk walking. 
And so it's measuring the acceleration, how much you're doing, how you're doing it. And so you have a, a physical score that you get up to 100 points on. And we assess those two things. So the object is to get 200 points in a day, 100 on the mental side and 100 on the physical side. And we set up a whole measurement system with sensors to measure that process. And we find incredibly that it's more effective than we thought it would be. Not only is it incredibly accurate, it's, it's like light years more accurate than Apple Watches or Fitbits. It, it, you can't cheat on it and it's really accurate. You know, you can sit and swing your arm and get steps on an Apple Watch, you can get, or Fitbit. You can give your Fitbit to some kid that's gonna go out and run track or something. Uh, you know, you can, you can cheat and get points, but with these things, you can't cheat on them. They're made for you, not anyone else. And, and there's two of them and they're cross-checking each other. So they have to be in agreement. It's, it's quite accurate. So when I say this is exciting, imagine this. Just imagine this. I have so many people, so many people that said, New Year's resolutions, I'm gonna exercise more, I'm gonna get healthier. You know, a week or two later, it's out the door and they never do it. We fit these people with these Livios, and it's incredible how much attention they pay. They're looking at their phones and checking their scores all the time, and they're trying to not get a low score. They're trying to get their score up. My wife does it all the time. I've been able to beat my wife one day. <laughs> it's just amazing to me how effective it has become. And you've been listening to Bill Austin, founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies, and about how his innovation, his technology, his product is changing people's lives. And it's not shocking to us, given all the time we've spent with the Stetson family office and our Better Lives at Lower Cost series, that these things matter in our lives. Social interaction matters. So does regular exercise and brisk exercise. But my goodness, how that mind processes, well, interactions with friends and families. I think it's inestimable, and now we can prove it scientifically. And again, just another example of how innovation and technology, you think you're working on hearing aids, the next thing you know, you're getting people to live better and healthier lives, and husbands and wives to compete, to see who gets a higher score on their brain health and their heart health, because these are the two things that make for better and healthier and longer lives. And as always, our Stetson family office pieces feature stuff like this. And we're doing it here with Bill Austin, again, the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies, and his work on hearing aids at starkey.com. You can find out more about Livio AI is the product. And when we come back, more of Bill Austin's story here on Our American Story.
And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of Starkey Hearing Technologies founder, Bill Austin, on the awesome innovations they're working on. Let's continue with the story. We're releasing fall detection that will, it knows because there's two accelerometers and gyroscopes, one on each side of the head. And they can tell whether you've sat down quickly or you've fallen down. And you can't trick it. If you try to act like you're going to fall on the bed, it knows. I mean, somehow it knows. It, it, by the acceleration and, and, and what's happening, it will tell if you've fallen. You can ask it and it will call three sources for help for you. If you don't respond within six seconds saying, I don't need help. If you have an elderly parent living alone or something, this is a great thing. We just had our lunchroom manager. His father lived in Ohio. He fell in his apartment. So he called and he didn't get an answer. He didn't think a lot about it. He called again and didn't get an answer. After a couple days, he's getting really worried. He called again. He finally called the apartment manager. The apartment manager went and knocked on the door, no answer. He called the police, they broke in, and they found that his father was down on the floor dead. He hadn't been able to reach his phone, which was up on a shelf, and he died on the floor. Now, he may have died anyway, or he may not have, because when he fell, Kevin's phone could have rang it would have rang and said, your father needs help, and he could have got someone there, or it could have been sent to someone else there, either to an emergency service or the apartment manager, whoever he knew. You can identify three people you wanted to notify, and it'll notify. So we think this is a great thing for people to have. As people get older and their bones get more brittle, they could have a stroke. And even if they didn't break anything, if you get help quickly, your chances of a better recovery are much, much better than if you lay there without help. So this is part of our help people be healthier, stay alive, and perform the task better. And the brain assistant is the perform the task better. So as we release the early brain assistant for instance, we will have Google Assist inside, so if someone asks you, like, who hit the most home runs in American baseball? You can say, let's see, who hit the most home runs in American baseball? It'll tell you in your ear, and you can answer and act really smart. If it's in the internet, we can put it in your ear. Just like that. And so, we're not gonna replace someone's brain, but we're going to help people use their potential better by doing more and more assist work. This assist will be augmented by Siri and all the other ones. But then there are other things that we're doing, the sleep assist. Through binaural beats and a series of harmonics, we can know what state your brain was in and we will be able to move brain state. 
Delta State for deep sleep, which we need for the body to self-repair. Otherwise, you have inflammations that go on chronically in knees and joints. We call it arthritis, or in the brain, we call it Alzheimer's. I mean, these inflammations go on, and they do damage over time that you can't recover from. And we knew if the body could self-heal better, as we get older, and you know, a lot of people don't get enough healing, good deep sleep to heal, that we could help people live longer. We knew we could measure brain state, and so we wanted to help people live longer and be healthier, but we've never run the brain. The brain runs us at its whim, but you can influence the brain by moving the brain state to be in the position to do the task that you have to do right then the best. It is uh, really sexy stuff. And so it's obviously, this makes me feel very, very good. I'm very excited about it. To be part of being able to bring something to the world that from my little area of what I endeavor hearing, I can bring something to the world that's really could help people function better. People think of Apple, Samsung as being really huge companies. The healthcare industry in the U.S. alone, not China, Europe, the rest of the world, in the U.S. alone is over $3 trillion. If we can help the body self-heal, we'll need less pharmaceuticals, less doctors, less hospital time, and that productivity can be directed elsewhere. So we've been able to make a lot of progress, but there's a lot more to be made. There's still more that we can do. We're not out of ideas. We're not out of places to go, and we're going to try to go there and get it done. So here we are. Now I'm in two sides of the world. We're doing things that will help people, so we will be good servants and be rewarded. And so I can do more work on the humanitarian side, and that brings true balance to my life. Because imagine this, you could take science and you can do anything you can dream of today. But here's what you can do with science. You can be so clever that you could kill people faster than you ever could before. So to keep people from not destroying their planet and each other, we need to continue to nurture them spiritually so they won't want to do that and they won't want to go there. And in the name of connectivity, we have become very disconnected. People are looking at their cell phones and getting text messages, and they're not looking in the eyes and hearing the voice directly of people unprocessed. If you go down south and someone says, y'all come back, you hear? They all say that when you leave because that's just polite. If you don't say that, you're not polite. But some people mean it because you're like a brother or a sister to them, and they'll miss you, and they, they look forward to being with you again. And other 
people can't wait for you to get out of there, and they just as soon never hear you to you see you again. We, the, the words are the same if you're texting it, but when you hear the voice, you know the difference. You know the difference right away. And people need to know that. They need to know that someone really does care about them, and they need to hear that in the voice, the human voice. And so we, we want to keep working on what Mother Teresa said, the greatest poverty is spiritual poverty. We can't let that happen in our world if we want our world to truly be better for our great-grandchildren. We can't rely on it being better by science alone because science can be used both ways, good or bad. And so you have to bring up, you have to bring up the other side. And great job, as always, to Alex Cortez, and thanks to Robbie for the production. And thanks to Bill Austin for all he does, proving that men of science, well, they have spirit. And my goodness, his faith walk is a remarkable one, Bill Austin's. Moreover, that business and men of business can change the world. And all of the great innovation in health, well, it's all because of what private entrepreneurs do with their lives to make people's lives better in the end. And Bill Austin is the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies, and you can learn more about their work and hearing aids at starkey.com. And that figure he threw out was stark and remarkable. $3 trillion a year are spent, well, all of it spent uh, trying to make our lives better. And with this one device, he's of the deep belief, and he can prove it, that people can, well, take fewer drugs, they can visit hospitals less frequently and need less doctor visits as well. And this is just a matter of living better and making better choices and having the data to do it and the devices to do it. And again, we've spent a lot of time with the Stetson family office on better health at lower costs. And my goodness, this is practically a feature for that series. Bill Austin's story, the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and even public policy when it hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. No one has more resilience or matches my practical, tactical brilliance. You want to fight for your land back? I need my right hand man back. Yeah. Get your right hand man back. You know you gotta get your right hand man back. I mean, you gotta put the button to the land, but the sooner the better to get your right hand man back. Alexander Hamilton. You might be asking, what the heck am I listening to? And if you've been listening closely, you might be asking, are they rapping about the founding father? 
Brothers? Or you might be saying, that's one of my favorite songs. This song, Guns and Ships, was from the Broadway musical Hamilton. The surprising smash hit given that it was a musical about a founding father. Alexander Hamilton. And a musical that used the genre of rap to talk about a dead white founding father at that. But come on, tell me you're at least not somewhat intrigued by this absurdity. That's got to be leading the guy on our $10 bill to be rolling in his grave. And one of the other Hamilton songs, A Farmer Refuted, shows Alexander Hamilton singing it. But surely that's not how it went down in real life. Of course, Hamilton didn't sing publicly. Most of the Founding Fathers were just a wee bit too stiff for that. No, but that's not what I mean. Hamilton didn't identify himself publicly with the words, the words that the musical used to create this song. His own words. Hamilton wrote them, but didn't sign them under his name. He made himself anonymous. Specifically, he called himself, quote unquote, an anonymous friend. Now, you might consider himself a coward for not attaching his name to it, or you might not. The year was 1774, and Alexander Hamilton, then a 17-year-old orphan born out of wedlock on a tiny Caribbean island, found himself at King's College in New York City far from home. His childhood writing landed him there. Noted for its, quote, bombastic excesses with such verve and gusto that it moved the island community to come together and collect a fund to send the young chap to the big city. And the encouragement only encouraged him to write more. And how could he not? A revolution was underway. The Boston Massacre occurred four years earlier. Paul Revere and Samuel Adams, yes, that Samuel Adams that inspired the beer, helped inspire a riot against the British for taxing them without representation for them in the British Parliament. And the British shot and killed five Americans. Then, one year earlier, came the throwing of British tea into the ocean, the Boston Tea Party. And then, that very year came the forming of a protest government to the British, the Continental Congress. And let's just say that every American wasn't gung-ho about it. The beginning, the majority of the people were against the revolution. That's Daniel Mark Epstein, the author of The Loyal Son, the book on the greatest microcosm of America's divisions. The division of Benjamin Franklin and his own son, William. His father visited him and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries because that was his side and the family's side, and William refused. And William ended up being the last royal governor to do the king's business in America. 
stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion and had to be taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement with bread and water for 18 months and suffered terribly. Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life. Whatever side you claimed, you were staking a claim to, endangering your life. Out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence who declared, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor on behalf of this cause, nine of them did lose their lives, 17 of them lost their fortunes, making it over a third of them who lost the first two, but none of them lost the third, their sacred honor. This reality is why one third of Americans didn't take a side in 1776. They were just hoping to survive. And according to Brad Smith, the chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics, it likely was just one of the reasons, a very understandable one, why the 17-year-old Hamilton and many of the founding fathers wrote anonymously. But there were other reasons, too. Hamilton's very first published writing was a piece that he published under the title A Friend of America, and he was responding to arguments made by various loyalist preachers. Loyal to the British crown. In particular, Episcopalian Bishop Samuel Seabury, although he didn't know it was Samuel Seabury because Seabury himself used a pseudonym. He used the name A Farmer. So Hamilton responded with this letter called A Friend of America, and then Seabury, still anonymously, they didn't know who, the two of them didn't know who they were talking to. Seabury responded, and Hamilton then published this paper called A Farmer Refuted, which he published under the name A Sincere Friend of America. Apparently he thought a friend of America wasn't enough. So that's the history of it. And it was very common in those days for people to write under pseudonyms or to publish anonymously for a number of reasons, including that they wanted to not necessarily have their political disagreements overflow into the social areas where they may interact or business where they may interact. They wanted to sometimes not have their you know, harsh, plain language said to one another interfere with their ability to reach compromises on other political matters. And, and above all, there was sort of a concept that readers should look at the arguments involved and that by publishing things under pseudonyms or anonymously, you forced people to deal with the arguments rather than to attack the messenger, rather than to attack the speaker. There's a good chance that the United States would not exist were it not for anonymous speech. I think the, the role of Thomas Paine's writings in particular, Common Sense and then The Crisis, were very, very important. And you wouldn't have wanted to publish those under your own name in, in that time because you would have risked perhaps your own death. And great job on that, Alex, and what a piece of history. And by the way, it's not just speech. People's donations to causes, well, those are private matters. And we're going to be getting into the NAACP in the state of Alabama. Because there were people in Alabama, many white people who supported the cause of desegregation. 
and they gave to the NAACP. And at a certain point in time, the state of Alabama came into the NAACP and said, we want those names. And we know why the state wanted those names. They wanted to out those people, have the Klan deter those people from doing the right thing. There's a history of anonymous speech, anonymous donations, and my goodness, the ultimate anonymous act, the vote. Anonymous speech, Alexander's anonymous speech, the Federalist Papers themselves, folks, written under anonymous names by three great Americans. More on this subject, it's a big one, here on Our American Stories. American stories, and as you know, we tell stories of every kind here on the show, including yours. And sometimes they're fun, and sometimes they're joyful, sometimes they're sad, and sometimes they're just plain difficult. And homelessness is a subject that, while most of us want to avoid, uh, we worry about it ourselves. I think a lot of Americans are a couple of checks away from being homeless, and you just don't want to think about it. It's sort of like Alzheimer's. I read a poll recently where people did not want to be tested for Alzheimer's even though they knew there was a chance it could happen to them. They just didn't want to know. And by the way, we've brought you Alzheimer's stories too. Glenn Campbell's is just so remarkable. And it's a serious social crisis around the country that's ignored, and particularly in some of our bigger cities. But one person is doing something about it. He has a ministry of sorts, if he doesn't mind me calling it that. His name is Mark Horvath, and he experienced himself the highs and lows of the American dream from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, which chronicles the story of homeless people around this country. Mark hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories, the homeless stories, to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is speaking with Michael and Danielle, who, along with their family of six children, live in a weekly-rate hotel room near St. Louis, a living situation just one step away from street homelessness. Michael works a full-time job, but hotel homelessness becomes a trap. Hotels cost more than an apartment, but you can move right in without a deposit and a hotel room is far better than the streets. Once in, people who are considered the working poor have an impossible time trying to save up enough money to afford adequate housing. Often these hotels are not in a good place for kids to grow up. Here's Mark. Michael and Danielle and family, we're here in Wentzville, and you guys are all living in a hotel room. Actually, there's a couple Mm -hmm. more of you even. So yep. who else do we have here? There's, this is Chimera. Yeah. This is Sierra. This is Sierra and 
This is Kai. Gotcha. Cool. And there's one hiding below yes. in the back there. So. Let's go. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, you're about to, uh, we come in, you're packing up because mm -hmm. you are out of money for the hotel. Yes, sir. With no place else to go. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, what's it like uh, living in a hotel? It's hard. It's stressful. Yeah, it's stressful and hard, but it's better than being on the street. Yeah. How did you end up in this situation? <clears throat> our, our landlord... Our landlord didn't pay the mortgage company. And they took the home. The sheriff we showed up and took the home that we were paying on. Really? Yes, sir. Oh, my gosh. And then how long have you been doing this hotel cycle? Uh, Almost a year now. Yeah, we went oh, to our God. we went to our mom's. Her mom had bed else, so we went yeah, there for a little bit. And then um, she couldn't afford to pay pay her bills, and I was giving what I could, right. and it wasn't enough to support two families at one time. Right. You're working, yes, sir. It's just not enough to get out of here. Pretty, you know, pretty, pretty much so. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Um, wow! And now the kids are in school. Yes, yes sir. And the oldest three are in school. That's got to be hard. Oh, yeah. Got to be hard on them and you. It's yeah. harder on them, I think, than it is on us. Yeah. Come on. So, oh, my God. Uh, and, and this young one, when I walked in, said he was five. Yes. He was yeah. happy. Just turned five. Oh, yeah. Just turned five on Tuesday. So, like, even here, I mean, you have six kids. Yes. When laundry comes around, there's no laundry facility in this place. There's a partial laundry facility. It's just not set up to do a full load on okay. the money you pay the first go around, if that makes sense. So how about uh, meals? Yeah, a lot of microwaves. Yeah, a What you see I've on the table is what we have got for a, our meals right there. Uh, what is that, like a skillet thing I can mm -hmm. cook yeah. in? Yeah. Well, you guys are smiling. Looks like you're making the best of it. Not much can do. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Not easy to smile. Mm -mm. It's okay. Not easy to smile. But you stop. <laughs> but for especially the younger ones, it's you don't really have a choice because they don't understand and it's not their fault. Right. Thank you for the milk. <laughs> She's sharing, Daddy. Well, it's not your fault either. <sighs> yeah, you still feel like you failed oh, yeah. somewhere. Right. Yeah, you. Uh, it's kind of hard when you do everything right, you know, and you're doing the American Dream, and you're, you're paying on something, you're working every day, and the kids got nice clothes, and they're going to school, and their friends stay the night, and then you get somebody that, that takes advantage of you and, and takes your money, and then lets you continue to think that you have a home, and next thing you know, you got St. Charles County with four officers knocking on it, saying you got to get off your trespassing. Wow. They gave us two hours to empty that home, so half of our sure. this really what you see. Except for one small storage shed as well, we have left of home. Yeah. Everything else, um, we couldn't move it in two hours. That was it. I, I was once evicted and given a half an hour, so I know it happens. I can't oh, yeah. imagine having kids and a whole family and having to move. It was just me. Man, my heart goes out to you. What would you want people to know about homelessness living in a hotel? Because this is, this is a face of homelessness that they don't see. Um, 
put a smile on for your kids and 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 make the best that you can you know and and, and pretty much like like us if you're gonna cry try to except for her right now but if you're gonna try to try to go yeah. into the bathroom and cry so the kids don't see it because you know dads ain't supposed to cry and yeah. and that's mom's job i guess to cry yeah, it's okay right. to cry <laughs> but you don't know what anyone's going through or how they get where they're oh yeah, yeah. people look so at you don't and, make the assumption that yeah, you know don't assume that, that, that because you don't have a home you know it what the economy is nowadays a lot of people are losing their homes and, and they're making thirty dollars an hour but they can't they can't make the ends meet with children and, and so, so they end up in these hotels which as we started it's still better than the streets yeah that's that's the that's the main thing that's why you know it, it, you don't want to be here but but you you got a roof over your head and and, and keeps everyone together yeah my daddy always told me before he died homes what you make it yeah yeah you know and and i go to work and i come in here i take my shower and i play with the kids and then God knows I try to go to bed in time to get up at, at, at 3.30 in the morning, but, you know, I got kids sleeping with me, and, and, and she has the monsters with her, and and this monster kicks around. Yep. yep, you sleep yep. with your daddy. Well, if you had three wishes, what would they be? Um, Three wishes for us, or three wishes in general? Three wishes any way you want to slice them. Three wishes for me would be to to to, to pretty much um Stabil yeah stabi stability for the children, but to to also end end homelessness for for like my father. He came home from Vietnam, and my my mom and him were on the street because everybody spit on him when he got back from the war. So he's out on the streets. Oh, uh, my father passed. He so passed seven years ago. But when he first came back from from Vietnam, he did three tours, and they they lost their home while he wow. was gone. And um, pretty much to to. Pretty much to have all the money that you can to, when you see people on the side of the road, to give them money and, 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 and because of... More understanding. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't realize how fast... This happens. It oh, happens yeah. Blink of an eye. And how fast it could quickly be you. Anyway. Right. So, Mama, three wishes? Um, other than the stability for my kids... Um, That's my, that's my biggest one, is the stability for my kids. Um, permanent. What we had. Yeah, what we had, what we, what we worked for. Um, other than that, a peaceful bath would be about the only thing I could say. Oh, wow, and That's yeah. definitely something you miss. You, you don't have that... I mean, you can run to the bathroom, but that doesn't last very long. Right. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. One more. Because they find you. Yeah. <laughs> um... Other than that, like I said, basically understanding. Because the kids are the ones, especially the older ones, like the one that's hiding behind me. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's hard on them, and mm -hmm. they take a lot of flack for it. Right. I will go. Well, yeah, you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Always got to put his two cents in. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much for talking to me. You're welcome. No, no problem. I think I did more crying than talking, but. No, you guys are awesome. <laughs> oh, no, no, Daddy, don't drink that. <laughs> and you were listening to Michael and Danielle, and that's Mark Horavath, and, of course, it's Invisible People. And Invisible People is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. No better way to do it than the way Mark's doing it. Was just, it's just give homeless people a voice. And no questions and no judgment, just a voice. And for more on Invisible People, go to YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.net.
TV. And my goodness, that wish from the mom, Danielle. Stability, a peaceful bath, a peaceful bath, and understanding. Three pretty simple wishes any mom should be able to have. Great storytelling. Thanks to Mark Horvath for his passion bringing these voices to the American consciousness. And thanks to Michael and Danielle, their story. So many homeless people's story. And again, what Michael said was so true. It could happen to anybody, and it happens real fast. And so many Americans are a few paychecks away from not being able to make that mortgage payment. Michael and Danielle's story, Mike Horvath's story, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and one of our favorite things to talk about is American history. The word Puritan has widely become a pejorative. It's used as an adjective instead of a noun in today's lexicon, but the real story of the Puritans is so much more compelling than the myth. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of the Puritans. It says in the dictionary that a Puritan is a person with strict and severe moral beliefs, especially with regards to pleasure. In high school and college, I was told that Puritans were patriarchal, excessively fanatical, joyless, and judgmental, obsessed with making rules. American journalist, satirist, and cultural critic H.L. Mencken coined the phrase Puritanism the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Even the most well-known Puritans, the pilgrims who sailed on the Mayflower to the New World, the roots of our Thanksgiving, are now facing the wrath of those who like to show their virtue by demonizing well-established heroes from the past. But who really were the Puritans? The folks at Media Gratier have been gracious enough to let us use the footage from their documentary, Puritan, All of Life to the Glory of God. Visit them at mediagratier.org. To begin, the Puritans don't have an exact birth date. They don't have a specific expiration date either. The term Puritan was first used in the 1560s, and it was not a compliment. For centuries, the church in Europe had been governed by the Pope from Rome, but John Wycliffe, a 14th century scholar at the University of Oxford in England, called for the Bible to be translated from the mandated Latin into a language everyone could understand. Here's theologian Jeremy Walker. Institutionally, the the Roman Catholic Church of that period, for various reasons, is set against this desire to have the Word of God available, accessible for the common man and woman. The church burned Wycliffe's body at the stake and dumped his ashes in the River Swift where they would be swept into the sea. Later, in 1526, William Tyndale's English translation of the New Testament was smuggled from Germany into England. 
Tyndale was the first to take advantage of the printing press. Here's theologians Steve Lawson and Jeremy Walker. Every river has to have its source, and the Puritan age really comes flowing out of the work of, of William Tyndale. Luther in Germany is doing there what Tyndale wants to do in England. He wants to bring the Word of God into the hands and hearts of the people of the country. And Tyndale, I think you have to say, is to some extent following Luther, but breaking ground in his own territory. So Tyndale is betrayed on the continent, uh, taken into captivity, and uh, eventually sentenced to death. Uh, his famous words were, Oh God, open the eyes of the King of England. That prayer is answered before very long because Henry VIII, who has up to this point been Tyndale's great opponent in, in the work of the translation and the spread of the scriptures in English, actually fundamentally takes that translation and eventually endorses it, and that translation is the very one that makes its way into English church buildings. In 1534, King Henry VIII's Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy, establishing that it was Henry, not the Pope, who was now supreme head of the Church of England. When Henry VIII died in 1547, his nine-year-old son Edward became king. He was the first English monarch to be raised as a Protestant, and unlike his father, Edward had genuine Christian convictions. A series of back and forth would occur for power in England between the Catholics and Protestants, resulting in more Protestant martyrdom. Ironically, it was this present threat of death and persecution that made Puritanism spring into life. 800 Protestants fled England where their faith was strengthened in the Netherlands by the writings of reformers such as John Calvin. When the Catholic Queen, Bloody Mary, died, and Elizabeth I became Queen of England in 1558, these exiled Protestants returned home, bringing with them a newly acquired theological depth and a zealous commitment to implement a fulsome, robust kind of reform in England. But things got worse in 1559. The Act of Uniformity was passed by Queen Elizabeth. From then on, anyone who spoke against or refused to use the Anglican prayer book for public worship was subject to fines, as was anyone who refused to go to the government-mandated church at least once a week. The Puritans were grieved. Here's theologian Ian Hamilton. The Puritans, like the Christians in the early church, feared heresy more than martyrdom. They believed that, that heresy would damn men and women to a lost eternity. They didn't simply believe that intellectually, they felt it viscerally. It was a reality they lived with. That reality was rooted in the work done by Luther, Tyndale, and Calvin, what's known as the five solas of the Reformation, the marks of Puritanism. Here's Joel Beek, author of Meet the Puritans, Michael Reeves, professor of theology and the featured teacher for the online teaching series, the English Reformation and the Puritans. Roman Catholicism said, and, and still says, it's grace plus the sacraments that will save you. It's faith plus good works, Christ plus the church, scripture plus the authority of tradition. And the Puritans were saying, together with all the great reformers, no, 
Scripture makes it clear that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. And they saw how giving that up gives up all the goodness of the gospel and plunges us into all the hopelessness and despair that Martin Luther had experienced before the Reformation. And they saw this is the joy and good news we're made for, and therefore this is truth worth living and worth dying for. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the story of the Puritans, here on Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. And we return to Greg Hengler's story on the Puritans here on Our American Stories. And here again is Jeremy Walker. The Puritans are very conscious that it's possible to claim to know God without truly knowing God. That it's possible to be part of an external institution without really belonging to the kingdom of heaven. And so it is not enough for them to simply have, if you like, the external label of Christianity. They are concerned for genuine conversion, for the life that is in Christ to be known in the souls of men and women. Here's theologian Kevin DeYoung, Jeremy Walker, Stephen Nichols, author of The Reformation, and Rosaria Butterfield, author of The Page-Turner, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Butterfield is a former LGBT advocate and tenured professor of English and women's studies who specialized in queer theory at Syracuse University. Many of the the, the pulpiteers of the day were renowned for their oratory and uh, the heaping up of classical allusions and phrases and Greco-Roman sources. And it was almost a way to show off the minister's learning. And the Puritans spoke against that, taught against that, and modeled something very different, that they wanted plain style preaching. I think fundamentally you'd have known that you were in the presence of a man who was in the presence of God. There would have been a true reverence that was evident, not just in his approach, but in the way that he handles the text. That he is concerned not to introduce anything of his own notions, but rather to discover what God has said. There's also a lot of criticism of Puritan preaching, and, and one of those criticisms is that these Puritans were long-winded. In fact, in the New England churches, the deacons would, would have these poles, and, and on the end of the poles would be a feather. And these were farmers, you know, they, they were already up, they milked the cows, they worked hard, and they sit for a few minutes, they're going to nod off. And so, as someone in these churches was starting to nod off during a sermon, the deacon would send the pole down the pew and just take the little feather and tickle their nose to wake them up. I mean, sometimes when people think about Puritan preaching, they think, well, they really preached a long time. I, you know, I think that'd be good for us too. It would be very good for us to develop longer attention spans 
for the words of life. In 1603, James I became King of England. Like the Puritans, he was known to hold Reformed views, so the Puritans were really hoping their situation would improve. They met the King the following year and were told he would be producing a fresh translation of the Bible, the King James Version, which would be largely based on Tyndale's earlier work. But when the king demanded all clergy conform to the liturgy and the government of the Church of England, the Puritans objected. Speaking of the Puritans at the Hampton Court Conference, the king threatened, I will make them conform themselves, or else I will harry them out of the land, or else do worse. Over the next five years, nearly 90 Puritan ministers were suspended from office. One of them, who was ejected from Cambridge University, became one of the greatest Puritan theologians of all time, William Ames. Here's John Snyder, pastor of Christ Church in New Albany, Mississippi. For the Puritan, you know, correct theology was essential. You can't love a God you don't know. You can't live for a God you don't understand. And nor do you want to live an entire life devoted to a Jesus that you imagined and you created. But for the Puritan, theology was never the destination. It was to be an applied science. It was to be something that was understood and then lived upon. And in those two things, then the experience flows. Now, two of Ames's books show that balance. The first is his systematic theology called The Marrow of Sacred Divinity. And that was very influential in his day on the continent, but even more so in the American colonies. One historian writes that Ames was quoted more often by the American Puritans than Luther or Calvin. Another book that he wrote was on the conscience. Now, it's a, it's a book that we call casuistry. It's a book where we take the truths of Scripture and we bring them down in Christian ethics to every area of life. So it was a book written by a pastor, really, to shepherd folks who didn't understand, how do I live this out? When we take those two books, we really have a well-rounded picture of Puritanism. We have people who have a high and holy view of God, the kind of view that makes them want to be careful with doctrine, but also to take those doctrines and, and to bring them down into every aspect of the human life. It was in this climate of government encroachment that the first English Puritans, known today as the Pilgrims, left England and sailed to the New World. Here's Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. They were driven by love of Christ, uh, deep concern for the purity of the church. They wanted to see the purity of a Reformed church take the form of a, uh, a pure Christ-centered uh, community and, uh, and civil government. And, and so it, you can say in one sense, they came for religious liberty. It was, it was their liberty uh, that they cherished uh, to have the freedom to seek to live before Christ in a church purified in doctrine and in, to demonstrate lives purified uh, in, in obedience to Christ and uh, a civil order that would reflect those theological convictions. For the Puritans who remained in England, things got worse. In 1625, Charles I became king and married Henrietta Maria, a devout Roman Catholic. In 1629, King Charles took the unprecedented step of dissolving Parliament altogether 
and in 1633, Charles appointed his advisor, William Laud, an Anglican with strong sympathies to Roman Catholicism as the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Puritans interpreted these moves as hostile acts towards themselves and their religious freedom. And rightfully so. Laud's persecutions on Puritans recalled the nightmarish torment of Queen Bloody Mary. Here again is John Snyder. Well, they were persecuted. Now, some of them left England. Others stayed and were imprisoned, and some suffered a worse fate. We have accounts of godly men who, because of disagreeing with Laud, had their ears cropped or had a brand put on their face. Hounded by Laud, the Puritans left England in droves. Many went to the Netherlands. Others went to New England. In 1630, John Winthrop led the first large-scale immigration of Puritans settling in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Over the following decade, some of the most celebrated preachers in England, including John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Shepard, and John Eliot, joined 13,000 immigrants who sailed to New England. John Eliot was born in 1604 in England, but actually it's, it's his life in America that he's known for. He migrated to Boston and took the pastorate of a church in Roxbury, and he was pastor there for 60 years. 40 of those years, he's the sole pastor. Eliot and other pastors were concerned about evangelism with the Native Americans. In fact, the Massachusetts Charter had statements in it that declared that one of the reasons they settled in the region was to reach out in evangelism. The real problem was the language barrier. The Indians in the region did not speak English, they spoke Algonquin. And so Eliot took it upon himself to learn Algonquin using the assistance of a young Indian man. He eventually became proficient. He even wrote a grammar for the Algonquin language because at the time it was only a spoken language, not a written language. Now he describes his first effort to preach in their language without a translator. And he says the first sermon in the Algonquin language was pretty much a failure. The people were distracted. They weren't interested in what he said. As soon as he finished the sermon, they dispersed. But he wasn't discouraged. And he said the second time he preached in their language, a very different result. They hung on his words. They stayed after the sermon. They asked questions about the living God, and they wanted to know how to find a cure for the disease of their souls. It was the beginning of a great missionary effort. Eliot devoted 10 years of his life to translating the Bible into the Algonquin language. And when it was published, interestingly, it was the first Bible published in the New World. Prayer and pains. Now, when he uses the word pains, we would say hard work. Prayer and hard work through faith in Christ can accomplish anything. Surely, Eliot's life is a demonstration of that. And you're listening to our story on the Puritans, Greg Hengler's work here. Theology wasn't the destination. The Bible was something to be understood and then lived. And we're hearing the tale of John Winthrop bringing 13,000 like-minded immigrants, like-minded believers to a new England. The story of the Puritans continues here on Our American Stories after these commercial messages. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. 
And we continue with Our American Stories and with Greg Kengler's telling of the story of the Puritans. Let's return to Greg. In 1636, these New England Puritans founded Harvard College, making it the oldest institution of higher learning in the United States. Here again is Stephen Nichols and Albert Moeller. Puritans get a bad rap. Uh, They come to us through Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. They come to us through Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. And they come to us from the intellectual elites who basically saw these as backwoods, superstitious, anti-intellectual people. The reason Harvard College was established was to make sure that an orthodox Christian ministry would be perpetuated in what they called the New England, in the New World. Very shortly thereafter, uh, in a frighteningly short amount of time, Harvard uh, lost its orthodoxy, and heterodoxy began to to move in, first in the form of uh, an incipient theological liberalism. And already by the next generation, uh, by 1701, Uh, you have very concerned people in New England and Puritans again, uh, largely in order to replace Harvard with a more orthodox college, uh, formed what they called the Collegiate School, which later became Yale College, later Yale University. But in both cases, it was Puritan love of learning, but not love of learning abstracted just as as an academic discipline, but love of learning, first of all, to make certain that the Word of God was rightly preached. Here's Jeremy Walker with a story about two famous Puritans, John Owen, who was an academic advisor at the University of Oxford, and a simple tinkerer, meaning a man who fixes household utensils, John Bunyan, author of the book that for centuries was second only to the Bible in popularity, and even today is number one on The Guardian's 100 Best Novels of All Time. The Christian Allegory... The Pilgrim's Progress. Here's Jeremy Walker. Perhaps my my favorite Owen story uh, is from later on in his life, when Charles II is is now on the throne. John Bunyan is coming down from Bedford to preach early in the morning uh, outside of London, and John Owen is going out to listen to Bunyan preach. Now, Owen moves in exalted circles, and it is said that King Charles II asked Owen, why do you go to hear that tinker prate? Why do you go to listen to that manual labourer chatter? And Owen is said to have replied, your majesty, if I could preach Christ the way that tinker preaches Christ, I would willingly relinquish all my learning. And that I think shows you the heart of the man. I want to exalt Christ. That's what he consecrates his learning to, And the better he can do that, the more ready he is to sacrifice anything else he is and has. In 1662, a new act of uniformity was established. Puritans were compelled to use the new Anglican Book of Common Prayer in its entirety or else leave the ministry. More than 2,000 Puritan preachers refused to take the oath and either resigned or were expelled from the Church of England. Here again, is Stephen Lawson. The trouble with preachers today is nobody wants to kill them anymore. Uh, the, the Puritans were so strong in the faith and willing to stand against the current of the day that uh, they were a different generation. They were willing 
to die if need be for what they believed. Jeremiah Burroughs was one of these Puritan pastors who suffered persecution. Here's Gloria Furman. She is the wife of a pastor, mother of four, missionary, blogger, and author of four books. It's really easy to uh, pretend that you have a quiet and gentle heart. Um, and it's easy to pretend that you are content. Um, all of these things are easy to pretend to be. But uh, Jeremiah Burroughs cuts straight to the heart when he talks about contentment. Um, and he does it with such practical life illustrations that really stick with you. And little things, little illustrations that he uses throughout his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, have stuck with me and they've been very easy for me to pass on to others, to my kids, to my friends, um, when we talk about deep spiritual matters. One of my favorites is this one. A shoe may be smooth and neat outside, while inside it pinches the flesh. Outwardly, there may be great calm and stillness, yet within, amazing confusion, bitterness, disturbance, and vexation. He goes on to say, if the attainment of true contentment were as easy as keeping quiet outwardly, it would not need much learning. The next time your foot pinches inside a tight shoe, you are going to remember what Jeremiah Burroughs says about contentment. It's easy to look content on the outside, but to learn contentment on the inside, this is something the Spirit does in your heart. Born in East Windsor, Connecticut, Jonathan Edwards is widely considered the greatest theologian and philosopher of the Puritans. His preaching throughout New England, especially his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was the stimulator of the religious revival that became known as the Great Awakening. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God became so popular and transformational in the American colonies that to this very day it is included in most American history textbooks. Here's Stephen Nichols and Pastor John Piper. So Jonathan Edwards was a colonial minister. His life spanned from 1703 to 1758. He ended his life very briefly for six active weeks as president of what was then the College of New Jersey, and today it's Princeton University. I remember Martin Knoll said, Edwards' piety lived on in the revivalist tradition, and Edward's theology lived on in academic Calvinism, but his, this were his phrase, his God-entranced worldview didn't live on. Well, that, that may be a little of an overstatement, but when I read it, I felt like, wow, that, that's why he's so rare, so precious, a God-entranced worldview. And even for me, the word worldview doesn't quite capture it. That sounds, you know, academic and head-oriented. It's, it's a God-entranced heart and a God-entranced stomach and a God-entranced ears and eyes and all of life and experience is God-entranced. If Jonathan Edwards was the greatest American theologian, George Whitfield is America's greatest preacher. Whitfield died and was buried on September 30th, 1770, according to his wishes, in a crypt under the pulpit 
of Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Here's Stephen Nichols, Jeremy Walker, and Steve Lawson. One of the sermons that Whitfield preached a number of times is a great sermon called The Almost Christian. And being an almost Christian is not being a Christian at all. You can be baptized, you can be in a church, you can be a member of a church and not be a true Christian. You're just an almost Christian, and that's no Christian at all. It was about the gospel. It was about preaching the gospel with passion because, uh, how does the hymn writer put it? Uh, Wash me, Savior, lest I die. Without the gospel, there is no hope. And you've been listening to our very special hour on the Puritans, hearing from some of the very best scholars from all walks of life as it relates to American history and American religious history. And when we come back, the very final episode in Greg Hengler's remarkable story about the Puritans here on Our American Stories. Get more at OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Turn to Greg Hengler's story on the Puritans, and here again we hear from Jeremy Walker. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the most recent people to have been described as the last of the Puritans. But the same was said of Spurgeon, and perhaps of others before them. Why are they called the last Puritan? Why do people in their day think that here you've got the Puritans reborn, at least temporarily? It's not because they're living in the past but because they're animated by the same spirit and committed to the same principles. And that his being and doing conditions all that we are and all that we do. And where you have a man who is governed by that principle, who is possessed of that spirit, you're always going to have the last of the Puritans. Those men are alive and well on planet Earth today. Um, They are scattered. Uh, Most of them are not known. They are pastoring smaller churches in obscure places, but they are known in heaven, and they are carrying the mantle of the Puritans in this day. The Puritans were like all of us, deeply flawed. They had weaknesses, and they had blind spots. Here again is John Piper, the man who is most often considered a modern-day Puritan, and Stephen Nichols. It's discouraging when your heroes uh, are are found to have serious clay feet. Um, I love Edwards and read so much about Edwards that I know that Edwards owned um, at least one slave, probably more over the sequence of his ministry there. 
uh, I know that uh, to try to ameliorate things in my mind, she was the first slave member of the church there uh, in Northampton. But that's discouraging because y you could wish that the uh, principal issues that in the New Testament eventually overcame the temporary um, allowance of slaveholding in the New Testament. Nobody was kicked out of the church for being a slaveholder in the New Testament. That's a serious issue. But seeds were being sown by the Apostle Paul in the way he spoke to slave masters and by him when he spoke to, in the book of Philemon, seeds were being sown that together with the uh, neighbor love command and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you would eventually overcome any sense that slavery was a Christian ideal or to be tolerated. And Edwards didn't go there. I think the effect that should have on me is not to say, oh, nothing he wrote is of any value anymore. Well, I could, I could get really bent out of shape right now and start talking about today's blindness. I'm going to be indicted. I lose sleep over this. What should I be doing more than I am doing for the cause of life and justice toward the un, unborn? So all that to say, I hope that the volumes of John Piper's writings someday will not be thrown in the garbage dump because of my sins. I, I think I've seen some true things. If they haven't gone as deep in me, sanctified me as fully as they should, then let posterity say that. Let them write the dark side of John Piper. Oh, I hope they'll see that there were true things he said. Now, that's the way I then go back and, and look at Edwards. I cannot deny that Edwards saw glory. That seeing glory did not produce a fully formed image of Christ in him. Discourages me. But when I look in the mirror, who am I to say, well, people should listen to me right now while I'm talking because... I've been fully formed. You know, even if I am less tolerant of slavery than he was, I think Edwards outshines me in holiness in so many ways. You know, I don't know if it helps, but I think of sanctification as kind of like an octopus, <laughs> eight arms, and each of those arms is a different spiritual quality or virtue or a fruit. And you can have a, a wonderfully mature arm of kindness and a really shriveled arm of discernment with regard to other people's stupidity because <laughs> you're way too generous. And, and as you look at everybody's octopus, some arms are really, really growing and wonderful and other arms are not. And so when I think of Edwards, that arm was not well formed. But oh my, what he saw and what he was in so many areas was remarkable. Uh, we see that Jonathan Edwards Jr., Edwards' son, uh, who also went on to be a, a college president and a minister, uh, he's one of the writers, one of the first writers of 
anti-slavery literature in New England. And so we see that as he grew up in Edwards and was impacted by Edwards, we, we see some of that, uh, the, the doctrines of understanding nature of humanity and, and just compassion, uh, we see that coming out even in Jonathan Edwards' son. Here again is John Snyder and Rosaria Butterfield and Puritan author and theologian Mark Dever. They cultivated a depth of understanding, a, a biblical depth, and a sensitivity of soul that only comes through a lifetime of concentrated devotion to God and paying the high cost of really applying that regardless of the cost to yourself. It's that Christocentric holiness that I find invaluable. They had a robust understanding of sin along with a comprehensive understanding of Christ's mercy. And what the Puritans had was a, a kind of superpower that we just don't have. It's called patience. They could stare and stare and stare and stare and stare at something in a way that we're not used to doing in our intellectual fast food age. We want to know, can we cash value? Can I have this in one sheet? You know, just pros and cons. What's the bottom line? Well, you know, you can have the bottom line of the relationship with your wife and really miss the whole thing. There's something about that relationship with your wife. Uh, there, there's something about your relationship with a friend. There's something about your relationship with God. And the Puritans, because of their patience, they expressed that in warm devotional language that's clear and moving. And that's been found by generation after generation after generation. The Puritans were notorious for their ability to always keep eternity in view. They believed that being ready to die was the first step in learning to live. They knew they were pilgrims on a journey to a new world. Let's conclude this story with these final words from John Piper. I'd love to see uh, an upsurge of passion for holiness. I think it's there in a, in a lot of younger pastors, but I think another branch are, are much more eager to look hip, look cool, look like they've watched the latest thing, they can use the latest lingo. And frankly, while that makes audiences laugh and think you're kind of cool, it doesn't do much eternal good. It, it won't make any difference in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. What will make a difference in people's lives when they're dying? That you were cool? Give me a break. That will not make any difference. They will want you at their bedside if they know you've been walking with God. If you've been spending time in the presence of the living God and can say something to them in their need when their kid is dying or their wife is dying, when you can say something because they've seen you authentic in the pulpit, dealing with the Bible faithfully. And I just think the Puritans, they tasted like that. They just tasted like that. And they, they weren't glib. They weren't trying to be uh, fitting into their culture. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler, and what a story indeed, the story of the Puritans. And we want to thank the people at Media Gratia again for allowing us to use footage from their documentary, Puritan, All of Life to the Glory of God. And so many of you learned a lot about the Puritans that you didn't know. I know I did. 
And just being reminded of Tyndale's story in England, all he wanted to do, of course, was bring the Bible to ordinary people so they could read it themselves, a liberator of sorts. And of course, for that, he was killed by the King of England. But yet his final words were, Oh God, open the eyes of the King of England. In the end, mercy upon his death and understanding. And what's also interesting here is that so many of us only know the story of the Puritans from Arthur Miller's The Crucible and Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. And neither of these guys were fans of people of faith, let alone the Puritans. So oddly enough, that's how the Puritans get remembered. And we're here to just correct the record. For believers or non-believers alike, all of the struggles that people of faith have had with totalitarians still going on in China, Muslims and Christians being, being punished for believing in a different God than the king, a different God than the totalitarian. And that's the real story about freedom of conscience for believers and non-believers alike who don't want to submit to anybody but their God or their own ideas. The Puritan story, a classic American story, an original American story here on Our American Stories.